So uh, today's uh, teaching, for the sake of time, doesn't have a review of all the titles, and actually I'm once again shifting them up a little bit. This uh, tonight, today we're going to start on what's called the seven gifts of motivation or the seven gifts of temperament, and um, I had planned to do that as chapter five and have a uh, have chapter four be three types of fruit, but I decided that really the purpose of all three of the categories of gifts that we're going to be looking at is to produce fruit. And so I thought, it, I decided to drop uh, the three types of fruit and fruit bearing. And uh, of course, the fruit, fruit, fruit is, of course, the, uh, the character of Christ or the fruit of the Spirit, character qualities. Uh, fruit is reproduction. I appointed you that you might bear fruit, Jesus said, John 15, 16. And John 15, 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit is the fruit of of leading others to Christ and discipling them into maturity. And, of course, whatever kind of seed you are is what kind of fruit you'll bear. So uh, the the necessity to press into Christ and, and be sanctified and mature and, and grow in knowledge and wisdom and so forth is uh, is first and foremost in the in the uh in what it takes to uh, bear the right kind of fruit in the lord and so forth so we moved that down to chapter 11 so i moved everything uh up one and we're gonna uh look at this seven gifts of motivation or temperament i'm not going to review much because i'm going to see if i can't cut this from a 13-part series to a 12-part series by getting through uh, this whole teaching today, that's probably not likely, likely, but I'm going to press into it. So let's get going. Uh, our our fourfold reason for doing this series is uh, that I, I want us to understand that God's gifts, every person has God's gifts. I want you to know that. There's a tendency, if you come out of a background where you're struggling with some insecurities or identity issues and so forth, there's maybe a tendency sometimes to underestimate your giftedness. If you're arrogant, you might overestimate your giftedness, but or you might under generally undervaluate others' giftedness. Giftedness is what happens when you tend to struggle with pride. So it's important to see that every member of the body of Christ has gifts in all three of the gift categories that we introduced last week when we looked at all the Greek words uh, from in 1 Corinthians 12, 14, and 16. And that you're supposed to employ the gifts. There's an unemployment problem in the body of Christ. Most people's gifts are underemployed. And, um, and you're to employ them as, as stewards in serving one another. The purpose of our giftedness is not to uh, feel better about ourselves or to self-actualize or to have our best life now or any other shallow narcissistic nonsense that sells well in Christian bookstores and TV, but to, to uh, build up God's purposes in restoring the body of Christ. So uh, with that, uh, what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6. Was, uh, we're just going to review one part of chapter 3, and that in, by going through this verse. There are varieties, and remember we mentioned the word there for varieties, which repeat, is repeated three times, and that's the only three times it appears in the New Testament, is the word diuresis. And it means 
more than varieties, it means uh, a particular, let me actually even read it from last week. Um, diuresis means a division, distribution, or distinction, a difference in particular, a distinction arising from a different dis- distribution to different persons. And so what we see in the verse 4, 5, and 6 is first he says there's a variety of charismatas, which refers to the gifts of the Holy Spirit deriving from the person of the Holy Spirit. God is one, but he functions in three persons, uh, three persons in one being. And there are varieties, again, a, a distinction uh, deriving from a different person. There are varieties of ministries, and that's the Greek word diakonai, which we get deacon from, which means services. Uh, first and foremost, you know, I don't like the term, frankly, senior pastor. I actually use the term senior minister because a minister is a servant. And, uh, you you know, uh, the whole idea of professional ministry to sit in the great seats or have the best parking spot or anything. I just can't stand that. I always park in the worst parking spot. And I started, my first job in this church was taking out the trash. So, because you're, you're, we're called to serve one another. That's the greatest calling according to Christ. And of course, that diaconi relates to the Lord Jesus Kyrios himself. And they that refers to the sevenfold ministry gifts that God has put in the church, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teachers, helps, and administrations. And these are gifts of service. These are calls to serve in specific ways. And there are varieties of effects, which is energema, or energematas, uh, which has, we get the word energy from it, but, but energema um, means uh, a thing wrought or an operation, an effect, a motivation. Uh, so there are a variety of these motivations, but the same God in, in speaking of Theos in his father, son, Holy Spirit, creatorial aspect that we think of as the father, but really the son and the spirit participate in creation, but that, but, but it all proceeded from the father. So these three gifts, motivational gifts, service gifts, and charismatic gifts, we want to look at these in detail but we want to remind ourselves that everyone has gifts from all these categories. Uh, we started the series by saying a common thing you might hear today is Joe has the gift of an evangelist and Mary has the gift of love and Bob has the gift of service. And that saying is somewhat correct because everything is a gift from God. James 1.17 says that all, uh, everything that is good comes from the father of all giftedness. Life itself is a gift. Redemption is a gift. We talked about four categories of gifts, four classifications of gifts. Uh, You know, general gifts, such as the gift of life and creation and breath. Uh, Redemption gifts, such as the gift of salvation and and regeneration and receiving the Holy Spirit in in the new birth and so forth. but uh, we talked about fruits that in a sense are a gift because everything is a gift. But when, and then we talked about, um, we talked about uh, uh, then finally these category gifts. These are gifts given to the body of Christ for its upbuilding. And there's three categories of them. 
And everyone has gifts from all three categories. That's very important to understand. God himself is a giver of gifts. We looked at all the words in the New Testament that had to do with gifts, and they really add up to is God has many great graces and gifts to put upon us, and the more we know him and experience him, the more gifts uh, we will experience. So with that in mind, we're going to look today at basically what are called the motivational gifts. And let's read a passage from Romans 12, 38. It says, for, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound or sober judgment. As God has allotted himself, uh, I'm sorry, I'm having a little trouble with my eyes today. You know, over here in the light, as, as God has allotted or assigned to each measure of faith. By the way, this is this uh, passage here. I put a blend between the New American Standard and the English Standard Version. So wherever that's in brackets, that's the English Standard Version. The rest is the New American Standard Version. So let's start over again. Romans 12, 3 through 8. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound or sober judgment as God has allotted or assigned to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise or use them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives or contributes with liberality or generosity. He who leads with diligence or zeal, he who has, shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now, again, everywhere that's in brackets is the ESV uh, for the passage. I'm going to actually move this back into this light a little bit more. I'm having trouble with uh, the fact that we just don't have enough light up here yet. So... Um, Let's, uh, let's talk about these, what I call the gifts of temperament or motivation and uh, some preliminary considerations and, and why this teaching is beneficial. I, I want you to know that of, like, of anything I teach, this is probably getting into the most subjective gray area kind of thing about whether it's very super clearly biblical or whatever. However, um, the overall package that some, while some specifics in this series are, are, are probably a little bit subjective and open to, in, to discussion or interpretation, the benefit of understanding that we all have multifaceted giftedness uh, is something I want us to see. You, you need to understand that for, on a variety of levels and for a variety of reasons. One, because what has become very, very commonplace in today's church is that most churches mostly do what we're doing right here. There's a teacher, there's professionals who run sound systems and so forth, and, and everyone else is a spectator. Uh, as it, and, and the churches that grow the most have the highest quality uh, worship teams, the nicest look, and the best 
speeches and the best worship teams in terms necessarily in terms of their love for God or there's or the depth of the Holy Spirit but in terms of their entertainment value and their in you know and uh, and I'm all for excellence but the, what what really a person like me is trying to do is apostles prophets evangelists shepherds and teachers are given to equip the saints so that you go out and do the work of the ministry and the reason why 90% of what we do is the discipling behind the scenes is to equip and release people uh, to, do, to do the various ministries that God has called us to do. And uh, that's, that is so important. Uh, and that's really kind of what some of the benefit of this teaching is, is, is just to kind of help us get acclimated to some things along that lines. So with that in mind, the first value of this teaching, especially this teaching about temperament and gifts, but it also applies to the, to the sevenfold giftings in terms of service gifts, is the grace to allow others to be different. There's something in our fallen nature that wants everybody to be the same. And we have to insist that, that everyone is the same in terms of their love for God and the character of Christ. We're calling everyone up into maturity in Christ. But not everyone is to be the same in personality, giftedness, function, service. Uh, in fact, God is a very unique God. Just like there are no two snowflakes alike, there are no two Christians alike. And uh, a body functions best when people are released, trained, you know, yes, trained up in, in Christ-like character, trained up in the foundations of sound biblical thinking and so forth like that that has to be uniform but people's creativeness to to live that out has to be multifaceted and um frankly sometimes the differences among us are our different giftedness now there's other sources of them including immaturity uh sinfulness uh, some things that aren't sinful, like such as uh, coming from different subcultures and, and this sort of thing. Um, but uh, there's lots of reasons why we're different, but one of them has to do with our different giftedness. And it's important to appreciate and value the giftednesses that you are not. Secondly, uh, Gifts of, I want you to understand that these gifts of motivation or temperament shape how we, not only how we see or view, but how we're motivated to respond to different real life situations. And we'll, we'll see that as we go through this. The reason some people see the same thing and respond differently sometimes is their different giftedness. Causes them to be, see it differently and be motivated to do something about it differently. Okay. Uh, next, all seven of these gifts have strengths and they are benefits to the body of Christ, but they all have weaknesses. It's very important to understand something about your giftedness. Your giftedness has a dark side. And to the, great, the greater the giftedness, the greater the potential dark side. God created three great archangels, Lucifer, Gabriel, and Michael. When Lucifer, who was the most gifted among the three, fell, the dark side became extremely hideous beyond all ability to even comprehend. I wouldn't encourage you to meditate on it too much. 
Um, so if you don't get some accountability, which comes out of humility, so that you're walking in the light with your, with your fellow members of the body of Christ, your dark side will become problematic to you. And a lot of other people will get hurt in the process. Make sure you understand that. Fourthly, there's infinite mixtures and combinations. Don't oversimplify things. I hate psychology because, you know, I remember there's the four types of this. And then one, there's one scheme where there's 88 personality types. Uh, you know, the, of one of the most popular ones in, in Christian evangelicalism, which is just frankly kind of nonsense, is that there's the phlegmatic and the, I forget what the four of them were. I used to study all that stuff 30 years ago. But it's, the, tr the problem is nobody's that simple. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. And that might be a somewhat, any of these kind of teachings are a useful tool for kind of understanding a little bit, but don't box yourself in by them. Oh, well, you responded that way because you're uh, this personality type or whatever. Well, the, the truth of the matter is if, if everybody has one of these seven motivations is somewhat of their dominant one, but two or three others, uh, which we all do, then the, the, then the possibilities of how a person is woven in terms of motivations are, are limitless. And they're never going to be the same from one individual to another. But hopefully seeing some of these categories will help us be more gracious and more understanding of people's differences is all I'm going for here. Fifthly, your motivations may change or broaden as you mature. Normally, because we come into Christ and we become a new creation in Christ Jesus, and as we're, that happens at regeneration in a potential form, but it continues to happen throughout our Christian walk. If we, pro, if we progress in Christ, which is not guaranteed, but if we do progress using the word, the spirit, and the church as the delivery systems of God's grace, if we, produce, if we do progress, um, many things will get healed in our life that cause motivations that weren't necessarily what God intended and may have even been false motivations. And other motivations will be developed because all seven of these are aspects of the mature, complete, and full person named Jesus Christ, the most mature person who ever lived. All of these seven come, are parts of Christ. So your motivations may broaden, uh, whereas you might have been primarily motivated by one or two of these seven, you might end up being motivated by three or four of them in time. And one of God's goals is that you would understand and appreciate all of the seven to some degree. All right, so let's get into them. The first one he says, if... if uh, again, we have gifts that differ according to the grace given us. E each one is to exercise or use them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of your faith. Prophecy, he's not talking about the office of a prophet here. That's a service gift. And people who have the prophetic motivation don't necessarily uh, move in the, in, in the office of being a prophet. Nor do they often move in the charismatic or, or necessarily move in the charismatic gift of prophecy. Okay, 
But people who are, are prophetic have a concern for God's glory or his reputation by the body of Christ becoming as accurate of a reputation of, of God as possible. Okay, if you really study it through scripture, starting, God has always wanted to have a people. That was what Adam's commission was, but Adam and Eve fell. That's what Noah's commission was. That's what Abraham's commission. When God made covenant with Israel, just before he gave them the Ten Commandments, he gave them the broader picture in Exodus 19, 5 and 6, that if you will indeed obey my voice and follow my commandments, you will be my people, my special treasure in the earth. God has always been about building a people. And that's hard for us to really get our minds around in our radically individualistic culture. But God, you can't walk with Christ unless you're walking with Christ in terms of a New Testament church and its visions and goals. So uh, prophetic people have, a, have a, a passion to see the body of Christ rise up and be great like it was intended to be. We're living in a time where the church is very broken down, divided. Our goals are smaller than they should be. We're sub-biblical in, in terms of even our understanding of the church. And prophetic people want to see the church become all that it's supposed to be. Now, um, so again, they have the motivation to call people or groups to a biblical standard in thought, word, and deed. Prophetic people like to expose and eradicate sin. They're never satisfied. They're always pressing for excellence restoration. They're, if you notice uh, any good coach, uh, you know, after the game and they're being interviewed in the middle of a season, they'll say, well, you know, they, you know the, the announcers will be going, boy, you really smashed them. You, you must be very proud. And you say, well, well, I see some things we can work on. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, we did, you know, the, yeah, we, we did, uh, we, we boxed out under the boards pretty well and stuff, but we really need to, you know, work on this, work on that, work on that, you know, um, there's always a higher standard to attain to if you're going to be championship quality, uh, Prophetic people hate sin, but they, and they don't usually define it in a shallow manner. You know, they're not about like whether, you know, you smoke or drink or, and, and you know, like that. That's you know what kind of clothes you wear and these kind of things are have become so so problematic in various legalistic expressions of of the church that you miss the deeper sins: pride, selfish ambition, vainglory, uh, not being teachable, overestimating yourself. So that's full of uh, eggshells or something. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so the um, uh, prophetic people tend to be intolerant of partial good. You know, you know, you'll hear coaches again go, you know, uh, they were expected to get smashed and they. They only lost by two touchdowns, and they'll say, what a great moral victory, and the coach will say, there's no moral victories. <laughs> you know, we came here to win, right? And uh, so that's, that's important. They're willing, uh, most prophetic people are willingness to embrace difficulties to go through brokenness. I just want to warn you, if you're prophetic in temperament, you will go through much of the school of failure. 
You'll go through much pain and you'll go through much brokenness. And God will do that because prophetic people without humility are a horrible thing. <laughs> um, because there's no grace in it. So usually the more prophetic a person is, the more they'll, uh, God will beat up on them. And usually prophetic people have a willingness to embrace that. You know, God always told prophetic people in the Old Testament, do something, lay on your side naked for seven years, and then after that, like, what do I do now? Lord, turn over. <laughs> you know, like, what? <laughs> um, what about the air conditioning? Um, there, prophetic people tend to, uh, especially in our day and age, because, you know, as, as C.S. Lewis pointed out in his book, The Problem of Pain, our culture began gradually in the in the 50s to define love is the acceptance and encouragement and approbation of all behaviors and um and social skills are to skirt around all issues and and never deal directly with anything uh you know when paul talks about speaking the truth in love our modern temperament is to speak the love without much truth <laughs> and uh, and that's what's considered socially acceptable that's a that's become a social norm of our culture uh, and i'm not talking about having no tact or being a bull in a china shop but prophetic people are usually willing to speak direct frank and bold if they're not careful they can be considered too harsh or misunderstood you need to root what you say in scripture and you need to extend as much grace as possible. But the truth is, if you really love people, you'll help them see what they can't see. And that's a painful process. No one likes the lights going on. Do you, you love that feeling in, in the middle of the night when someone turns on all the lights right in your face? I have 150 some lights in my three-story house. I'm a little crazy. And uh, all kinds of can lights and everything. Almost every one of them is on a dimmer switch so I can bring it up gradually because I just hate that feeling of the light just going bam right in your face. Um, so uh, a prophetic person is not necessarily a, a person who holds the office of a prophet or prophesies regularly. We covered that already. So let's move on to the next kind, a service person. A great example of a service person is a lady named Dorcas in the New Testament. Talked about in Acts chapter 9, verse 36 through 39. Most of you are probably um, familiar with her. But a, a, a service person is motivated to demonstrate love by meeting practical needs. What I love about Dorcas is it doesn't say she was a scholar. doesn't say she moved much in spiritual gifts. But she sewed for people. <laughs> she, she uh, you know, she cooked. She, she did all these practice. She made all these quilts and things like this. She made, she served in practical ways. And God so honored her as her as a model and example. He wanted to preserve eternally for us in the body of Christ <laughs> that he had the saints when she died, that she, the saints went running to Joppa to get Peter and he, he came over her and rose her from the dead <laughs> and uh you know there were several apostles who got killed by the sanhedrin and by the romans and so forth that didn't get such a honor as being raised from the dead but god uh, rose dorcas from the dead because he didn't want to lose her gift for the time being and he wanted to make an eternal example out of her to the church people who serve in practical ways are the greatest 
Don't tell that to Muhammad Ali, who used to always say, I am the greatest, but uh, he, he wasn't. <laughs> people who sweep the floor are the greatest. Uh, service people are always doing something practical for you. They're quick to meet practical needs. You know, oh, gee, that window needs some caulking. We'll take care of it. Care of it. Uh, a good servant is, always has the ability to, re, to recall people's likes and dislikes. They don't just bring you a dish for dinner, but it's the, your favorite dish cooked the way you like it cooked. It's not just, hey, we ma made you uh, tuna mackerel casserole, and you're going, tuna mackerel casserole? I can't stand tuna mackerel. <laughs> you know, are you kidding? I'm going to have to do one of these polite, thank you very much, and eat it, but I really am going to be, that's not going to be fun. A, a, a service person, like, they know what your favorite is, and they know just how you like it spiced and prepared and everything else or uh, whatever. If they buy you a sweater, it's the sweater you really wanted. People who don't have the service motivation often will serve in ways that are like, well, that, that was nice, but that's not what we exactly needed in this situation. But people with the service gift... They actually remember. They they have a they, they do things with excellence, and they and they remember the standard that it needs that needs to be attained to. Uh, service gift people tend to have a lot of short range goals. They're not thinking about where we're going thirty years from now, but they did get the lawn mowed because it was Saturday, and we need needed to, and we had church on Sunday. <laughs> they're you know they're very uh, some service gifts tend to be perfectionists. They might actually not, like, I'm not going to let this guy mow the lawn because he doesn't do a very good job. I'm going to put him on the weeding or whatever. Uh, you know, they want, it, they want it to be right. Uh, they detect sincere and insincere appreciation. Uh, they'll often even use their personal funds to serve. Of course, you need to be cautious in that. Uh, pay your bills on time. Don't overspend yourself into, uh, um, I'm going to use an example when we get down to mercy gift about people sometimes who will use personal funds, but they'll go too far with it. Uh, some people think servants, guys, are, are, are trying to advance their own cause. Really, one of the things that uh, I should have put with this, but if you're taking notes right next to the, flip the page back and write Luke 16, 10 through 12, where Luke, Jesus says that if you're faithful in that which is little, you'll be faithful in much. You know what? Anybody I see having great potential for leadership or teaching or administration, I, you know, I uh, have them take out the trash. <laughs> you know, and uh, mow the lawn, babysit, etc. Learn to learn to put joint compound on and sand it on and sand insulation. Those, you know, because serving. Will will crucify your your motivations. Um, Jesus said, "If if uh, if you're not faithful in that which is another's, no one will give you that which is your own." One of the most important things that we miss out on by our the way we raise up leaders now is we take them to Bible college, and then we they do this resume thing and they hire into a job. Of course, they get so much student debt, they have to have the job to hire. I never, never, never want to, I hope I never have to, 
get into raising up any leaders ever that way. I want people that have served at their own expense for a long time and been willing to come up through the ranks because they see the vision. Now, there are times where you have to hire, like, a pat, you know, like in the Mansfield church that Ray came from, the senior pastor was out jogging. He, he died of a heart attack. It kind of set them into a situation where they had wonderful elders, but none of them was really the right guy to be the senior minister, senior presiding elder. And so they, they had to begin to look to hire from without. But, uh, and they've gone through that process three times now, but one of them was a disaster. The Bowling Green Church that Larry and Catherine and I come from uh, has had to go through. That happens sometimes. But about three out of the four that they tried to hire didn't, it wasn't a good fit. The beauty of raising up people from within is you don't ever go through what's called a head transplant. Because, I mean, you've are, if you go to Tuesday nights, you've heard Jason teach so many times. If you come on Sundays, you've heard John teach so many times. And is, uh, you know, the truth of the matter is, is this church gets to the point where we're too crowded in, in here, which I hope will happen in a, I think we're poised to see that begin to happen in about one or two years, two, two to three years maybe. But when that does, one of the ways we're going to solve the problem is we're going to ask 10 or 15 people to go plant another church. Because that causes you to constantly have a new need for new leadership to emerge. But if you've already been doing that, then it's no change. In, you're, you're used, you're, you know, it's the same leaders you're used to. With the same agenda and the same vision and, and the same motivations. And it, frankly, taking one-third of the leaders and some of the up-and-coming guys allows the up-and-coming guys to emerge in a new church. It allows new people to emerge in this church. And uh, it's a win-win for everybody. And it solves the, safe, the space problem for six months to, to 12 months. <laughs> and then the church, if it's healthy, will grow those people back. So does that make sense? Thirdly is the gift of teaching. I have just now realized that that clock is not functioning. I've been like, wow, I'm doing good. I'm doing good, but it's, the clock's not moving. Uh, uh-oh, so now i got to rethink here. All right, so I thought, wow, this is going really well. We've got to get an event more expensive clock back there. All right, so... Um, Somebody take care of that, please. Whoever has the gift of service. Uh, <laughs> teaching. That changes the whole equation here. All right. Um, teaching is the motivation to search out, clarify, or validate truth. In other words, most people have the gift of teaching, never feel like they know enough to actually teach. <laughs> They're like, I don't think I can share on this. You're like that. <laughs> like you would want to research it for another year or two before you had it right. Right? So... And which is good. They want it to be right. Uh, teaching motivations are people who tend to study or accumulate knowledge. They like lots of information, even details. My wife is a, a lot like that. She reads more books than I do. But she never actually feels like she can share anything. <laughs> because she's only read like 2,000 Christian books, not 7,000. <laughs> you know? 
which is kind of, there's a good in that. I hope you can see the good in that. They prefer to research rather than present. Uh, they always say they don't understand it well enough. They enjoy doctrinal studies. They want truth presented in a logical fashion. They look beyond particulars to universals, principles, schemes, and generalizations. That's, that's a huge thing. Like what's happened in uh, today's evangelical world is uh, people have various teachings and then they find proof texts, but there's no systematic comprehensive approach to the whole scripture. And um, it's interesting going back to uh, going back to uh, the Sunday school classes I used to teach at a, a church we were at for a few years. Uh, the graduates of Bible colleges were among the least biblically educated, and I found that 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 comes that, that that's become kind of a way, a, a thing because of our approach. You know, the the Bible was written by one author. Even though it was written on, on, on three continents by 40 authors over 2,000 years, it was written by one author for one purpose. And there's underlying covenant, th things like covenant, the, the kingdom of God, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ are threads throughout in, in word pictures. There, even though God, even though it's historically accurate, God is so sovereign that he writes literary uh, metaphors and word pictures in even the people. You know, Joseph really happened, but Joseph is one of the most beautiful types of Christ there is. And God is sovereign enough to have done that. This, uh, he orchestrated Joseph's life in such a way that we get in the Bible, we have the accurate literal history, but we have all sorts of literary metaphors. And, you know, what, one of the things that kind of changed after the Civil War was the Bible as a literary uh, piece that has a, that has a narrative, uh, as Luther taught, uh, started to disappear for an over-literal interpretation. So if, that you, can't, you can't say something like Joseph is a type of Christ because it doesn't anywhere specifically say Joseph is a type of Christ, even though it's obvious and it's in keeping with the way the apostles taught the New Testament. The apostles did that over and over and over. And so we get into this, well, if, in, if it's not a specific example that the apostles actually gave, you can't use their principles of hermeneutics to derive it. That's just nonsense. And it causes the Bible to be diminished in, it, in, in, in your worship. It causes your God to be diminished. He is sovereign. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He had the Bible written before there, he ever created time. And he knew exactly who would write it and what giftedness and temperament and sanctification process he'd take them through to be his instruments to write it. Hebrews 13, 20 talks about the blood of the eternal covenant. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had an eternal covenant before time was created that the Son was going to come to redeem man. Therefore, God foreknew that man would fall. And all things are working according to his predestined plan. Anything less is to diminish God is some, in terms of his, his divine attributes. So, I don't know how I got on all that. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's the whole thing of looking beyond particulars to universals. So, um, 
teaching motivations, part of their dark side is they can tend to believe their gift is the, is the only foundational one. And part of the problem with uh, these kind of things is there's some truth. It's, all, it's hard to shake off something that's, that's a bit dangerous if there's a bit of truth in it. And the, frankly, there is, there is a flesh, and it's very wicked, and it talks to you. There are demonic spirits, and they talk, they talk to us. And they come with part truths. And it's your brother or sister that will usually help you see through the part truths. There, there is a great truth that, you know what, we've become very, our, human, our hermeneutical principles, our understanding of the ancient church and how, how the apostles would have interpreted scripture has been lost in many ways and needs to be restored. And that is somewhat foundational to what we must do. We need to understand, we, we really don't, when we read Jesus and the Gospels and Paul, we miss most of their message because we read it through our current cultural lenses. All of that's true, uh, but it's not the only thing that's found important or foundational. Watching the time. Uh, that G slid over there at the end of point three is because Microsoft Word always reformats everything the way it wants, and I missed that one. And yeah, basically, spend at least one hour on every teaching trying to fight Microsoft Word's preformatting scheme. Um, teachers are often criticized for too many details. Uh, their need to be objective can seem very cold and, and sometimes prideful. An exhorter, which can also mean encouragement. An exhorter says, you can do it. Uh, cheerleaders are exhorters. You know, Sean, Sean, he's our man. If he can do it, nobody can. You know, you can do this. Get, get back in there. The coach slaps you out of it. You can do it. Get in there. You know, uh, Remember once I lost so bad in wrestling, the guy was so much better than me that the, I got one point because he let me back up to take me down again because you can pin a guy easier when you take him down. But I had, I had diligently bridged. I was so embarrassed. I got pinned one time in my wrestling career. And it was so embarrassing that I worked out my neck so much that I could bridge for the whole six minutes. I could hold, I could hold him on my neck for six minutes. <laughs> I used to practice with the heavyweight from our team. I, I wrestled 98 pounds, and I used to say, Max, get on me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold you up for six minutes. <laughs> so, so I'll never get pinned again. And I never did get after the first time. But uh, one time, the one match, I, won, I lost like 11 or 12 to 1, the one point I got because, you know, he was having trouble pinning me. So he thought, I'll let him up because you can sometimes pin a guy quick off a takedown. And so, I, you know, when I came out of the match, the, uh, uh, after I lost 12 to 1 and I'd been looking at the light, I knew every light in the, in, in, in the gym, what, how much the wattage was. I was aware of the two that needed replaced and, uh, <laughs> you know, and so forth. And uh, then when I came off, the coach said, what happened to all those moves I showed you? <laughs> he always thought you could, you could do it. So anyway, an exhorter, Barnabas is, is called a son of encouragement in, the, in the Acts 4.36. And if you think about it, think about Paul and Barnabas when they split up. They split up over the fact that when they, the first time they went out, John Mark, who eventually wrote the gospel of Mark, God restored him greatly, 
who was originally Peter's disciple, but then had decided to be to, to hook his wagon with with uh, Paul and be a follower of Paul because of Barnabas. He was Bar- John Mark was Barnabas's cousin, and when Barnabas was sent by the apostles up to Antioch in Acts chapter twelve. Barnabas said, hey, John Mark, come on, let's go with me. <laughs> and so he did. And uh, they, were, they were cousins. And uh, John Mark chickens out on the first missionary journey and runs back to Antioch. And uh, that was considered the New Testament world. That was considered the most grievous sin to, to deny Christ like Peter had done. Uh, it, it was seen not much different than what Judas had done, frankly. And... Um, uh, so when it came time for the second trip, Paul didn't want to take John Mark. He said, nah, he chickened out the last time. He needs to be restored by God, and he's not ready yet. And Barnabas, maybe because he was blinded by the fact that John Mark was his cousin, said, let's take him. I, I'm, no, I think he's ready. Let's go. And so they, they actually split over that issue. But it says of, of Paul that he was commended by the brothers to the grace of God. And... Uh, in other words, the brothers agreed with Paul. That's, that's where you've got to understand the body of Christ. The body of Christ, the leaders in Antioch agreed with Paul's thinking. And interesting, from there on out, the Holy Spirit chose to follow Paul's plannings of churches through Luke. God preserved eternally the record of Paul's journeys and Paul's plannings and Paul's planted churches diligently on the Antioch model. The Antioch church is the model New Testament church. But Barnabas is never heard of again in Scripture. We actually know from church history that Barnabas planted more churches than Paul. However, Paul's churches lasted 600 to 1,000 years and changed the entire Roman Empire and ushered in Christian civilization in the West. Now, that's imp- I, I, the implications of that are just astronomical. Exhorters have a dark side and a good side. They have the motivation to stimulate the faith of others. I'm going to have to quit here after exhortation and take it up with giving next week. Uh, they're cheerleaders, they pump you up, they visualize specific achievements and describe describe precise steps of action, follow these five steps to victory or whatever. They want practical applications for teachings, not abstract theology. They're Methodist. They're (laughs) in in the sense that that word came from that John Wesley developed a method of discipleship, small groups and accountability and all that kind of stuff. That's where the original Methodists got their name. They, uh, they see the tr- value of trials and encourage people that it's worth paying the price to, to stay in there, to thank God and, and exercise faith and be diligent in the midst of trials. Um, some people, therefore, judge them as being oversimplistic. You know, you're ki- are you kidding? Like, I just found out I have cancer and I got a speeding ticket on the way to work and I lost my job. Well, thank God that he's doing good things in your life. (laughs) Praise you, Jesus. All right. Don't forget to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Philippians 4.4. Take that and go home. All right. So uh, (laughs) I'm just kidding. But uh, 
they lead, uh, they, they, they're not big on verbal witnessing generally. They're big on, um, on, uh, on, in, um, on leading people to the Lord by our corporate example. I'm going to jump down to Roman numeral four real quick. Because what we have in a lot of times in our church is not always the same people are here from week to week. And I, this, this example will help you understand the value of this teaching. And I'll say it again next week. Uh, little boy drops a glass and breaks it. Four-year-old, six-year-old, young, very young boy. Okay. The prophetic motivation will tend to rebuke the kid. You know, I told you quit being silly and you weren't supposed to slide around on the floor while you're holding a, a glass glass, okay? A service person will just sweep it all up and clean it up and, uh, and take care of it, <laughs> right? Uh, a teaching person will actually say to the boy, now let me show you how to hold the glass in the future. If you follow these three steps, to holding a glass with two hands, make sure you dry your hands a little first, dry the condensation on the outside of the cup, then hold it with two hands and keep it up in front of you. You know, th three steps to how to carry the glass and never drop it again. An exhorter will say, here, let me give you another glass of water. You can do this. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and uh, uh, a person with the gift of giving will say, I never liked the fact that those glasses didn't match anyway and go out and buy three cases of matching glasses and, and give all the ones that don't match to charity. <laughs> you know? uh, and uh, a, a person that's in leadership or administrative person is the person who will orchestrate some of that. They'll say, hey, could you, uh, since you're kind of, you know, gift of, motive, of giving, can you go to Walmart for us and get some nicer glasses? I never liked them either. I agree with you. Uh, could you sweep that up, please? Uh, uh, prophetic guy, listen, the kid's only four. You, you can yell at him when he's 12, uh, you know, and, uh, uh, and, and, and the mercy guy will hug him and, uh, and cry with him a little bit. <laughs> so anyway, we'll end with that illustration. We'll pick that up next week. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.